0: Great to see you this evening, excited to dig into God's Word for our November Prophecy Update, and uh, good to see you guys out for this tonight. So we're going to be covering a lot of territory this evening, so I you get your Bibles out, turn to Genesis chapter 12, that's where we're going to start, and then we're going to make our way to about the middle portion of the Bible in Ezekiel chapter 37, And then we're going to end up at Zechariah chapter 12. So that's going to be our course tonight. And um, so we're Genesis chapter 12 is where we're going to begin. Let's pray. And then we'll dive into this. Lord, I just thank you so much that you have given us your word. And that your word lays out for us your plan, that we, Lord, can live with a great sense of hope because we have all of the prophecies in the Bible that we can look to that have been fulfilled that only give us a confidence that the ones that are yet to come will be fulfilled. And so, Lord, I pray tonight that you would encourage our hearts as we look at your word, as we consider your heart and plan tonight for the nation of Israel. And so we give you this time in Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you were here for our September prophecy update, you'll remember that the focus of that prophecy update was on how all the puzzle pieces have been falling into place. And we centered our conversation that night on the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, when he said that the last days would be like the days of Lot and like the days of Noah. And we noted that in both of those cultures, the overwhelming theme, the overwhelming just kind of mark was that they were living in defiance against God. And we talked about how our country and really the world has been moving more and more and living in defiance against God. And in our nation, we see that defiance in the following ways that that we are living in a culture of disdain, where if people don't agree with you, what do we do? We cancel them. We live in this cancel culture these days, and we live in a, a culture of deception where we're seeing people just turning from the faith in uh, record numbers. And that's one of the things that Paul said would be happening in the last days. And that we're living in a culture of distortion, that we in our culture have distorted God's view of marriage and, and sexuality and gender. And so we we saw from our our prophecy update last time, that the puzzle pieces are falling into place. And if you missed that, I want to encourage you to go online and uh, watch, listen to our September prophecy update. I think you'll find it to be enlightening. But if we're likening the prophetic picture to a puzzle, the nation of Israel would be the centerpiece of the puzzle. That the nation of Israel is literally the epicenter of Bible prophecy. That this tiny nation that is smaller than the state of New Jersey. In fact, I want you to look at this map for just a minute. So right over there, you see there's New Jersey. Here's the map of the United States. That's New Jersey. Israel is smaller than that. Isn't that incredible to think about? This tiny little nation with a population of 8.5 million people. Now that's smaller than Los Angeles County. Okay. did you realize that 8.5 million people. And yet this little country has become the geo geopolitical center of the entire world. In fact, did you know that Israel is in the nightly news more than any other country? In the entire world. In fact, last year, in 2021, USA Today, there were 260 editions put out of USA Today. And in those 260 editions, there were 247 stories about Israel. is that incredible? You might say, well, well so what? Well, here's, here's a contrast for you. In those 260 editions, there were 88 stories about the U.K., There were 62 stories about Australia and 32 stories about France, but 247 stories about Israel. Why is there so much focus on the nation of Israel? Well, it's part of God's plan. And this is what I want us to see here. This is where we're going to start, where the beginning of the plan in Genesis chapter 12. Read with me, starting in verse 1. It says, now the Lord said to Abram, now this is Abraham, his name uh, was first called Abram and then God lengthened it to Abraham. God said, the Lord said to Abram, get out of your country, from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you. And I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, Abram was living in a place called Ur of the Chaldees. He was not a follower of God. Ur of the Chaldees was an idol-worshiping community. But God appears to this man, this man Abram, and says to him, I want to do something with you. And so I'm going to call you to take a step of faith. Abraham ends up being called the father of faith. Take the step of faith and go to this land that I am going to show you. And God presents to Abraham here what has, what, what is known as the Abrahamic covenant. And this covenant that God makes with Abraham consists of four unconditional promises. The first is that God promised to bless Abraham personally, and that promise has been lavishly kept because Abraham has been blessed in many, many ways. And for thousands of years, his name, the name of Abraham is revered by Jews, Christians and Muslims alike. Abraham has been blessed. The second promise God made to him was that he said that he would bring him out and make of him a great nation. Now, as I said, currently there are more than 8 million Jews who live in Israel and the population of Israel is expected to exceed 20 million people by 2065, expected to grow that much. There's another 5 million Jewish people living in the United States. The Jewish people are the descendants of Abraham, in case you didn't know that. And there's another 14 million scattered around the world, all descendants of Abraham. So, you know, numerically, Abraham has become a a great nation. And get this, Israel is number 10 on the list of the most powerful countries in the world. Isn't that amazing? This little, tiny country over there in the Middle East is number 10 out of 195 countries. It's number 10 on the list. That's impressive. For a country the size of New Jersey. God has made Abraham, God has made Israel a great nation. That was the second promise. The third is that God promised to make Abraham a blessing to many. Now think about this. Think about how the world has been blessed by the Jewish people. Without the Jews, we would have no Bible. Without the Jews, we wouldn't have the Ten Commandments. Which is the basis of jurisprudence for most of the world today. Without the Jews, there would be no Jesus. And without Jesus, there would be no salvation. We would all be lost. Abraham is considered the father of the faith. And every single Christian, we have a connection to Abraham. Abraham has been a blessing to many. But here's some other ways that Israel is helping the rest of the world and being a blessing to others. Israel is the world leader in promoting the rights of people with disabilities. Probably didn't know that. Israel is the world leader in cybersecurity and cyber tech. Israel is the world leader in agriculture and water management. Israel has become what was, what, what, what was a barren landscape and has become lush. Israel is a world leader in exports with a record of $165 billion industry. Israel is the world leader in exporting of diamonds. So all of you ladies who have a little diamond on your ring, you can thank Abraham for that. It's okay. I thank Israel for that. And now Israel is supplying gas and oil to Europe. I would say that this part of the Abrahamic covenant that God made to him over 5,000 years ago has been kept. The nation of Israel, the people of Abraham have been a blessing to many. The fourth promise that God made to him there in Genesis 12 was that, God promised to bless those who bless Israel and curse those who cursed her. And God has kept that promise faithfully. In fact, I believe one of the the reasons why the nation of America has been so blessed is because of our relationship to Israel because of our friendship with, with Israel, God has blessed our nation. And that's one of the reasons why I think it's always important that when we're, you know, voting, that we need to th- be thinking about that. We need to, be, I always like to say that we need to vote biblically, that we need to be thinking about, you know, people going into office who uh, who are in favor of Israel, because God gives this promise. And it's interesting, the prophet Zechariah in Zechariah chapter two, verse eight said this, that God would plunder the nations that plunder Israel for he who touches Israel touches the apple of his eye. And history tells the tragic story of what happens to nations and leaders who oppressed Israel, starting with Egypt. You know, the children of Israel Jacob and his family, they come into Israel, all 70 of them. And, you know, through Joseph, you know, that part of the story, Joseph is second in command and they have a place and they're able to, you know, then begin to grow there as, as uh, Joseph is, under the Pharaoh and the Pharaoh likes the people of Israel, but eventually that would change. And the Pharaohs would take the people of Israel and begin to oppress them and make them slaves and use them to build their, their pyramids. But all during that time of their being enslaved for 400 years, think about that. 400 years, they're enslaved there in, in Israel. God, it's like an incubation period where God's allowing the nation to grow from 70 people in its start to almost between two to three million by the time we get to the book of Exodus and Moses and, and God you know is calling Moses to go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. But Pharaoh, as you remember, he didn't want to let the people of Israel go. And he had oppressed the people of Israel. And the people of Israel were his workforce. And so what did God do? He sends these plagues. And after these 10 plagues that come upon the nation of Israel, or excuse me, the nation of Egypt, and the final one being the the where the angel of death passes over, finally Pharaoh says, you know, let him go, get him out of here. But it was through that those plagues and then through what happened at the Red Sea that we see the, this nation of Egypt that oppressed the people of Israel suddenly being destroyed. And Egypt has never been the same. Or take the Midianites. When the Midianites came against the children of Israel on their wilderness journey after they left Egypt... It's interesting, this battle's recorded in Numbers 31, if you want to, you know, look that up on your own, but it was very quick and decisive battle. All the Midianite cities were burned to the ground and the Israelites took us plunder masses amounts of gold and silver and bronze and along with cattle and sheep and donkeys and get this, the Midianites, they don't exist anymore. Has anybody ever met a Midianite? <laughs> no, they don't exist. They were completely done away. This, this group of people that were vicious and sought to come against Israel on their wilderness journey, God, the, the prophecy of Zechariah, God says, hey, if you curse my people, you come against my people, I'm going to come against you. The countries of Assyria and Babylon and Greece and Rome have all been soundly defeated. All these world empires soundly defeated and weakened after the oppression of the people of Israel. And of course, in modern day times, we saw the Germany under the leadership of Hitler. We saw them uh, murder six million Jewish people. And yet Germany ends up being soundly crushed in World War II. Why? Because God blesses those who bless Israel and curses those who curse Israel. Another great example of this, a, a, a really a miracle of a war happened in 1967. It's really the most spectacular modern example of God's punishment on those who curse Israel. And although Israel became an independent nation in 1948, The Palestinians and the Islamic nations surrounding it didn't recognize its statehood and vowed extermination. And in 1967, the United Arab Republic, or what's known as the UAR, allied with with, uh, Jordan, Syria, and the Palestinian guerrillas to attack Israel from the north, south, and the east. And the Arabs, in this battle, Israel was hopelessly outnumbered, outmanned, and outgunned. The Arab armies numbered, get this, more than 500,000 men. The, the nation of Israel, they only had 75,000 troops. The Arabs filled in 5,000 tanks and 900 combat aircraft, whereas Israel only had a total of 1,000 tanks and 175 planes. Yet when the smoke cleared after six days, how long has this battle been going on in Ukraine? Remember when that started and we thought, you know, this is going to be over pretty quick. And man, the Ukrainians, they, they've been amazing, haven't they? I mean, it's been, it's been incredible. But, but think about this, six days. After six days, when the smoke cleared, the UAR had lost most of its entire air force. About 20,000 lives, and Israel had taken over significant Arab-controlled territory, included the Sinai Peninsula, the Golan Heights, Gaza Strip, and the West Bank. It's an amazing war. And when we go to Israel, some of you have experienced this, we go with a, a little boutique company um, out of New Jersey, and uh, the owner of it, his name is Shalom. And Shalom, he spends half of his time in Israel and half of his time in New Jersey. He was a general in the uh, Israeli army. And one of our just most favorite parts of the trip is we go to the Golan Heights and he tells the, about this war. And he tells his testimony, and it is so moving. And every single time, you know, he has done that with us, and a few times he hasn't been able to. But almost when we go to Israel, I'm like, okay, we have to get Shalom for the Golan Heights because it's just such a moving, moving time because it's such an incredible miracle. The world stood back, and it was God standing up for the people of Israel. And it's interesting, in 2015, when Israel was receiving vicious threats of annihilation from the prime minister of Iran, remember that? And the Israeli prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, gave a powerful speech before the United Nations Assembly, and he spoke of the preservation of the Jewish people, and he said this, he said in every generation, there were those who rose up to destroy our people. In antiquity, we faced destruction from the ancient empires of Babylon and Rome. In the Middle Ages, we faced ex- the Inquisition and expulsion And in modern times, we face the Holocaust, yet the Jewish people preserved. And now another regime has arisen swearing to destroy Israel. That regime would be wise to consider this. I love that. He's like, and he said this, I stand here today representing Israel, a country 67 years young, but the nation state of the people nearly 4,000 years old. And yet the empires of Babylon and Rome are not represented in this hall of nations. Neither is the thousand year Reich. Those seemingly invincible empires are long gone, but Israel lives. The people of Israel live. Isn't that great? Because God has been faithful to Israel. So God made this fourfold covenant, this promise to Abraham as he called him out of his land to go to this unknown territory. And God would make Abraham, who at that time was 75 years old and didn't have a single kid. Think about that. I'm going to make of you a great nation. <laughs> he has no kids and he's 75 years old and his wife's about the same. I mean it was it was crazy. But God loves, doesn't he, to work through underdogs. He loves to do the impossible, especially regarding the people of Israel. Now, it's interesting that the land that God promised to Abraham and his descendants was described with clear geographical boundaries. I want you to see this on this map. So this little part right here, this is Israel right now, okay? Everything in the red is what God promised to Abraham. And so it takes in all the land from the Mediterranean sea as the Western boundary and from the Euphrates river, that's the Eastern boundary. So if Israel were occupying all of the land that God gave to them, they would control all the holdings of present day, Israel, Lebanon, the West bank, Jordan, plus substantial portions of Syria Iraq and Saudi Arabia. Not incredible. And and the the thing that's really interesting is that Israel has never in its long history occupied all of this land. Not even at the height of The reign of David and Solomon when Israel, you know, really was at its zenith and it controlled the most amount of territory. It still didn't encompass all of this land, but it will one day when Jesus comes back and he sets up his kingdom. And the fact that Israel has never occupied all this land has caused many Bible scholars to spiritualize the meaning of this promise to to Abraham. And they they try to equate the land with heaven. That's what God was telling Abraham. And others claim that these promises were conditional and forfeited because of Israel's rebellion. But I love what Dr. John Walverd wrote. And um, who was here... Um were any of you here when Dr. Wolver actually came and preached wasn 't that amazing? He was like eighty eight years old, and uh you know he just kind of he walked like this you know out to the the pulpit, big tall guy. Um, scholar, if you don't know who John Walvoord is, he's a Bible scholar, Dallas Theological Seminary. You know, we, we told him we'd have a stool there. He's like, I don't need a stool. You know, and boy, he could preach, man, he preached. But Dr. Walford wrote this, the term land used in the Bible means exactly what it says. It's not talking about heaven. It's talking about a piece of real estate in the Middle East. After all, if God was promising Abraham heaven He could have stayed in Ur of the Chaldees. Why go on a long journey? Why become a pilgrim and wander? God meant land. That's what he was giving him. And any normal reading of scripture recognizes Canaan as an actual place, an actual piece of real estate in the Middle East, an expansive soil that belongs to the descendants of Abraham forever. Now, the fact that Israel has been dispossessed of the land in three different periods of its history is not an argument against its ultimate possession. For you see, occupation is not the same as ownership. And each time they were dispersed from their land and driven out of their land, God brought them back into their land every single time. So God has consistently kept his promise to Abraham, and that gives us an absolute assurance that he's going to keep his promises in the future. See, it's like I said before, one of the reasons that we can believe in the prophecies that the Bible say that are still coming is because of all the prophecies that have already been fulfilled. Now, I want to consider tonight the miracle of the rebirth of the nation of Israel. You see, after the death of Solomon, Solomon was the king in Israel after David, and and really it was under Solomon that, that the nation of Israel grew to the height of its grandeur of influence and territory. But after the death of Solomon, Israel was divided into two kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And the kingdom of Israel was the first to rebel against God, and they ended up being taken captive by the Assyrians. And then the Assyrians, led by King Sennacherib, eventually came in and took captive of Judah. And the Assyrians ended up being defeated by the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar. And remember what King Nebuchadnezzar did. He came because every single time that the people of Israel were defeated by a country and taken captive, there was always a remnant that was left. So the Babylonians take over the Assyrians, and there's still a pretty good, you know, group of people living in Israel under the, you know, the oppression of those countries. Remember what 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 uh, Nebuchadnezzar did. He goes in and he carts off the best and the brightest of the people of Israel. That's where the story of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come into play because they end up being brought to Babylon. And this was always Nebuchadnezzar's mode, is he would take the big, the, the brightest and the smartest and the best-looking in any country that he conquered, he'd bring them to Babylon, train them in the Babylonian way so they could then lead their people. And so that was his plan um, with them. But there's still a remnant, always a remnant left in Israel. Israel still exists under all these different times of oppression. Well, the Babylonians would be overthrown by the Persians. And it was during that time in the Persian Empire, this is where the story of Nehemiah comes into play that God puts it on the heart of Nehemiah when he hears of the oppression and what's going on with his people and how the walls in Jerusalem have, have been torn down and the city is lying in ruins. And he gets this burden to go back and rebuild um, the city or rebuild the walls. And, and uh, King Artaxerxes, he has favor with them. And he says, go ahead and go. And so he takes a contingency back. And then Ezra would also take a contingency back of people and they would, you know, work on rebuilding. And the the people of Israel would have a, a season after that in Israel of kind of being established again. But then the Persian empire would be overthrown by the Grecian empire. And then the Grecian empire would eventually be overthrown by the Roman empire. And the nation of Israel would fall under the oppression of the Roman rule in 63 B.C., and that would happen and continue all the way through the time of Christ and then even, even after the time of Christ. And remember in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is with his disciples and they're, they're at the temple mount and they're just, you know, amazed at the temple and just how incredible it is. It's this building that King Herod had built. And it was kind of an offshoot of the, the a replica of the, the palace, the temple that Solomon had built. And they were amazed by it. Remember what Jesus said? Not one stone of this building will be left upon another. And they thought he was crazy. What the heck is he talking about? But then after the death of Christ in AD 33... And then several years later, we come to A.D. 70 and Titus Vespasian, who would eventually become a Caesar, or the Caesar in Rome. He led the Roman legions down to Israel and they put down the Jewish rebellion against the Romans. And the Romans didn't just take Israel into captivity as Babylon had done. They massacred the Jewish people. They destroyed the temple. Not leaving one stone left upon another because here's what happened. One of the soldiers threw like a torch of fire into the temple. It caught on fire. And then all the gold that was in the temple began to melt, and it seeped, It was seeping through the walls because the, the bricks um, that they used there, in fact, you can see this today if you go to Israel, these massive stones. I mean, they're just huge. I wish I had a picture of that. But um, there, they, there was no mortar. I mean, they were just heavy enough. They just sat upon one another. And so the gold is seeping through. And in their greed to get the gold, the Romans literally turned stone upon stone upon stone, and not one stone was left. They killed all the Jews living in Israel and those who survived were, were uh, made slaves and, and they were driven out of the promised land and the people of Israel were scattered at that time. And it was then that Israel ceased to be as a nation. In fact, the Romans even changed the name of their country and territory and and they called it after the, the name of one of Israel's ancient enemies, the Philistines. And so in AD 70, they started calling it Palestine because it was linked with the word, the Roman word for Philistines, where that came from. And so it was there that Israel lost its homeland and eventually they lost their language. And the nation that at that time ceased to exist as a nation, and the people of Israel were dispersed all over the world. It looked hopeless. It looked like this people were gone, done. But way back in the time when the Babylonians, and even before the time of the Babylonians, God had put on the heart of two prophets in Israel to prophesy about the rebirth of the nation. And God spoke through these two prophets long before Israel even ceased to exist as a nation. And this had never, ever happened before. In all the times before up to Rome that they, a country would come in, Israel still existed until AD 70. In AD 70, the Romans came in and there was no longer a remnant. The the nation no longer existed. But the prophets Ezekiel and Isaiah spoke about Israel being reborn. And Ezekiel saw an incredible vision in Ezekiel chapter 37. I want you to turn there now. It's called the vision of the valley of dry bones. Ezekiel 37, raise your hand when you're there. If you're looking for Ezekiel, um, go to Psalms and then Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Okay, just keep going to the right. Ezekiel, Daniel, you went to find Daniel, you went too far. Ezekiel 37. This is an amazing prophecy. Verse 1. The hand of the Lord came upon me. And brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley and it was full of bones. And then he caused me to pass by them all around and behold, there were very many in the open valley and indeed they were dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? So these are bones that have been sitting there a long time. They have no life. They're, they're dry. Can these bones live? And so I answered, oh Lord, you, you know. And again, he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. And thus says the Lord to these bones, surely I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live and I will put sinews on you and will bring flesh upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live. And then you shall know that I am the Lord. And so I prophesied. And as I was commanded and I, as I prophesied there was a noise and suddenly a rattling and the bones came together bone to bone. And indeed, as I looked the sinews and flesh came upon them and skin covered them Over, but there was no breath in them. And also he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy son of man and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath and breathe on the slain that they may live. And so I prophesied as he commanded me and breath came into them and they lived and stood upon their feet an exceedingly great army. Note that. And then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. It's amazing. You know, when we get to heaven, I I just hope, I know the Bible says when we get to heaven that we're going to be like Jesus. We're going to see him and we're going to be like him and we're going to know all things. But, but I just hope there's a time in heaven where some of these stories like this, that God's just going to like roll it back for us. Because this is one I'd love to see, you know. I just would love to see what Ezekiel saw and just the rattling of these bones and then the flesh coming upon them and him standing up. And, and suddenly this, this massive field of dry, dead bones becomes a great nation, a great army. But get this, Ezekiel is writing this in Babylon in the year 500 BC, long before Rome even existed and came into power. He's in captivity, but he's seeing the nation of Israel coming back to life again. And even though 50 years after Ezekiel wrote these words, Nehemiah and Ezra would lead a contingency of people back to Israel to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, repair the walls, Israel would not become a great nation. They would not have a great army. Ezekiel was seeing something different. He was seeing something that was going to take place at a later time, a nation that was completely dead, that was having life breathed back into it, a nation that would become great. Notice he continues there in verse 11. They indeed say, Our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. And then you shall know that I am the Lord. When I have opened your graves, O my people and brought you up from your graves, I will put my spirit in you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. And then you shall know that I, the Lord have spoken it and performed. It says, the Lord. God was prophesying here of a nation coming back to life again. Skip down to verse 21. It says, "Then say to them, thus says the Lord God, surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations wherever they have gone." catch that among the nations, wherever they have gone and will gather them from every side and bring them into their land. And I will make them one nation in one land on the mountains of Israel. And one King shall be King over them all. And they shall no longer catch this. be two kingdoms. Remember? After Solomon, the kingdom was divided. They shall no longer be two kingdoms, nor shall they, they ever be divided into two kingdoms again. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from all of their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. And then they shall be my people and I will be their God. Some wonder if this passage is really talking about the end times because they say, well, you have to realize Israel was in captivity when Ezekiel wrote this. And so he's only speaking of the captivity in Babylon and God was going to restore them, you know, after that time with Nehemiah and with Ezra. And when people say that, I love to point out that Ezekiel says here that God was going to draw his people from the nations, plural. Plural. They weren't in the nations, plural. They were in Babylon. That's where they were. So it's obvious that Ezekiel is talking about another time when God was going to take his people who would be scattered. When were they scattered? In AD 70. When the Romans came in, they were scattered. They were dispersed. In fact, did you know in 1900, there were more Jewish people living in New York than there were living in Israel? They were dispersed all over the world. So Ezekiel is seeing something different, a dead nation coming back to life, a scattered nation coming home. And none of that would happen until Israel ceased to exist as a nation after the Roman invasion in AD 70. And so think about this. For 2,000 years, the nation was dead it was gone. It was a forgotten people. But catch this. In Ezekiel 36, in verses 8 through 15, I'll just highlight it for you. It'll be on the screen. Ezekiel would prophesy of the restoration of Israel, that it would be restored like a tree budding fruit, in verse 8, that God will increase the numbers of the house of Israel, that its cities would once again be inhabited and its ruins rebuilt, that animals will be plentiful and the land will become fruitful, that the people will never again be deprived of their children. That God then declared that the nation of Israel will never be destroyed or suffer taunts from other nations again, that did not happen when Nehemiah led the group back but it ha- but the israel since they became a nation after when did, well let me, let me get let me get here when did the rebirth happen may fourteenth nineteen forty eight that's when the rebirth of the nation took place. And so much of what Ezekiel has prophesied here has happened in our lifetime. Now, some of this has not yet happened yet. Some of this is still future because it's not going to happen until Jesus comes back, when all the people are restored, and the nation of Israel is now following Jesus, the Messiah. But starting in 1948, 650,000 Jewish people came back to the country when they became a nation again, after 2,000 years. Do you know that has never, ever happened before? Look it up. There's never, ever been a nation that ceased to exist, that lost their language, that lost their homeland, that was reborn again, especially after a 2,000-year gap. It's, It's a miracle that God did. And since 2015, the greatest population of Jews are now living in Israel. And today, Israel is an agricultural powerhouse in the world. Today, the military might of Israel, it's legendary. The prophecies of Israel being reborn and becoming great have been fulfilled right before our eyes. But Ezekiel wasn't the only one who prophesied about the rebirth of the nation of Israel. So did Isaiah. Isaiah Isaiah was writing 740 years before the birth of Christ and 817 years before Rome would invade Israel and cause the nation to cease to exist. And he wrote these words in Isaiah 66 verse 8, who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day or shall a nation be born at once? God put this on the heart. Of these prophets, that this is what he was going to do with his people. And again, it's never, ever happened before. Isaiah also said this in Isaiah 27, verse 6 those who come shall cause, those who come, he shall cause to take root in in Jacob. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. Did you know today Israel is one of the largest exporters of fruit in the entire world? Isn't that incredible? Isn't that amazing? The promise of God to, to Abraham. Israel becoming this blessing to the world. Israel's reemergence in her ancient homeland sets the stage for the final fulfillment of biblical prophecy you see the return of the Jews to their homeland pinpoints where we are on the prophetic timeline. We know that we are living in the last days because Ezekiel was talking about what would happen in the last days. And like I said, part of his prophecy is not yet fulfilled. But that single event of the nation of Israel becoming a nation again being reborn is the single most significant thing that signals that we are living in this time where we're close. We could say that we're we're in overtime. Jesus could come back there's nothing holding him back. We're living in that time today. So here's the last thing that I want us to consider tonight is why is Israel important in the present and future prophetic picture? And this is where I want you to turn to Zechariah chapter 12. So just keep going to the right, all the way to right before um, Matthew, you have Malachi, and then you have Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 12. Why is Israel important in the present and in future prophetic picture number one because god said that israel jerusalem actually in israel would be a cup of drunkenness and a heavy stone for the world look at verse one the burden of the word of the lord against israel thus says the lord who stretches out the heavens lays the foundation of the earth and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against it against Judah and Jerusalem, and it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples, and all who would heave it away will surely be cut to pieces, though all the nations of the earth are gathered against it. Zechariah sees two things that will be true about the city of Jerusalem in the last days. He says that it will be a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples. The idea is that Jerusalem will intoxicate and stupefy the surrounding peoples. Like they'll be obsessed with it. In the ESV version, it says that Jerusalem would be a cup of staggering. The NIV puts it this way, a cup that sends the nations reeling. So obviously he's telling us that there's going to be this abnormal preoccupation with this little city over in Israel. In verse 3, he says that it'll be a heavy stone, that others will try to heave aside, or they'll try to get rid of it. They'll try to divide it. And it's so interesting when you think about this, that anyone would care about this city in this little tiny country. I mean, the city of Jerusalem is relatively small. It's about population, about 800,000 people. Now, just to put in comparison, you know, San Diego is over 3 million Okay. So just small in comparison. It has little strategic value. It has no natural resources. There's no inherent riches. It's far from a body of water. There's no ports near there. Yet it's the most hotly contested piece of real estate today on planet earth. Why? Why would it be this city with no port, no real significance, be such a focal point? Well, it really has nothing to do with politics or economics. It's spiritual. It has to do with religion and race. You see, the Arab nations, especially those that are Muslim, despise the people of Israel. In fact, did you know almost every single day in Israel, there's some type of uprising you know, we, we sit here and we, you know, hear the news of a shooting that took place here or a shooting that took place there or a bombing that happened somewhere. That, that is a weekly occurrence in Israel, especially around the area of Jerusalem. If you do not subscribe to the Jerusalem Post, you can get it online for free. I encourage you to do so. You can read and just kind of see what's happening in Israel. And it's just astounding because every single day there's something like it's it's a normal part of their life. They're surrounded by people who hate them, who want to annihilate them, who want to do away with them. So the Arab nations, especially those that are Muslim, despise the people of Israel. They 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 refuse to acknowledge their right to exist as a nation. In fact, here's an example: If you fly on Turkish Airlines, and you know how on an on an airline it has you open it up and it has like the map of all the places that they fly to, and they the Turkish Airlines fly, fly to Israel, they don't list Israel on their map. They're not even listed. It's a destination they go to, but they won't put Israel on their net because they refuse to acknowledge their existence. The Arab people surrounding Jerusalem have a passion for possessing the city that is not justified by their history. And this is what's really, really interesting is that the Muslims came to Jerusalem as their third holiest city. But did you know that, the, that Jerusalem is not mentioned once in the Quran? Not once. However, Jerusalem is mentioned over 800 times in the Old Testament scriptures. It's also worth noting that during the centuries when Jerusalem was under complete Arab control, no Arab ruler or Islamic leader ever made it an object of his religious pilgrimage. They never came there to visit. Again, you think that's kind of strange. Um, Kind of a strange indifference toward a city that is considered to be the third holiest religious site in, in the Islamic world after Mecca and Medina. But when the Islamic people pray, they pray with their backside facing Jerusalem. And it's a, it's a way of disgrace, disgracing the people of Israel. Well, this preoccupation with Jerusalem comes to a head during the tribulation time. In fact, that's why, did you know the, the Bible refers to the tribulation time as the time of Jacob's trouble? Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about when I mention the tribulation, the Bible talks about a time when God is going to bring forth his wrath upon the world that has rejected Jesus. Right now, we're living in an age of grace where God is still waiting. He's still longing for people to, you know, turn and, and, and receive Jesus. And if you haven't done that tonight, I want to encourage you to give your life to Christ because what's coming is going to be bad and God's going to pour out his wrath upon a Christ rejecting world. And it's time that the Bible in the book of Revelation and Daniel um, chapter nine and several other places in Zechariah talks about this time when God is going to judge the world for the rejection of Jesus. And it's going to be so intense that the Bible says that that unless those days were shortened, no flesh would survive. That's how intense it's going to be. But that time is also called the time of Jacob's trouble. Who was Jacob? Jacob was the son of Isaac, descendant of Abraham. Jacob, after he wrestled one night with God and, and uh, you know, he ended up being crippled and God changed his name from Jacob to Israel. Jacob meant, you know, kind of a con artist. That's what his name meant. Israel meant governed by God. And that's what happened to him. But Jacob, is, so it says the time of Jacob, the time of Israel's trouble. Why is it called that? Well, because there's two parts to the tribulation time. One is God's wrath being poured out on a world that has rejected Jesus. And part of that wrath is really God giving the world over into the control of the devil and the Antichrist. Remember in the book of Romans? Part of it says in God, in his wrath, what did he do? He, he gave people over to their flesh. Well, that's what he's going to do in the tribulation time. Say, okay, you know, you guys want to rule yourselves? Here you go. And he's going to turn them over to the devil and the antichrist, as well as, you know, he's going to bring some cataclysmic things that are going to happen uh, upon the world. So, so that's one of the things that's happening during the tribulation. But an, another reason for it is that God's using it to get the attention of the people of Israel. And you see, a lot of this happens in Israel. And you know why the tribulation time is divided into two, three and a half year periods? It's pretty simple. The first three and a half year period, the Antichrist is at peace with Israel. In fact, he and Daniel lays this out that he he makes a covenant with them. Seven year covenant. And in that covenant, he's going to help them rebuild their temple. That's one of the things that the Jewish people just so much want to have happen. He's going to come up with a way for the, the Muslims, the Arabs, the Jewish people to all coexist on the Temple Mount. Revelation chapter 11 kind of lays this out. But during the middle of that, that three and a half year period, he's going to turn on the Jewish people. And he goes into the temple and does what Jesus and Daniel both referred to as the abomination that causes desolation, where he goes into the Jewish temple and basically demands that the people of Israel worship him. And when they don't, he turns on them and all hell breaks out, breaks loose. They see his true colors during that time. And that's why Jesus in Matthew 24 says, pray that this doesn't happen on the Sabbath. Because the Jewish people they adhere to the Sabbath. he says, "Pray that it doesn't happen on the Sabbath because you need to flee, you need to be able to 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 run when this happens now that that makes, that' a, has no that doesn't pertain to us at all. We don't keep the Sabbath like they do, and I think the reason why that doesn't pertain to us is because the church is going to be gone. We're going to be raptured before all of this takes place. We've talked about that before. So for three and a half years, though, the Antichrist is against Israel, terrorizing the people of Israel until Jesus shows up at his second coming. And Zechariah further describes a scene that is in the book of Revelation where the nations of the world led by the Antichrist are coming against Jerusalem and Jesus himself is going to intervene on their behalf. Notice in verse 8, key phrase here, in that day. Everybody say, in that day. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. And it shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. So what he's describing here is when Jesus shows up and As the defender of his people. And this happens it's what the bible refers to as the battle of armageddon where the nation the the armies of the antichrist are marching towards jerusalem and they're going to have they want to have their way and come against the people and jesus comes back from heaven and he intervenes on their behalf and israel's eyes in this moment are opened up about jesus look at zechariah 12 verse 10 verse 10 it says and i will pour on the house of david and on the inhabitants of jerusalem the spirit of grace and supp- supplication. supplication, then they will look on me, catch this, whom they pierced, and yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. In that moment, the Jewish people are going to realize, you see, in Israel today, the Jewish people, they don't accept Jesus. There are some Messianic Jews, but the majority of them, they don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. They still are waiting for the first coming of their Messiah. They fail to realize that the Bible laid out two comings of Messiah. The first is that he would come to be the lamb of God that would give his life for the sins of the world. And the second time he's going to come, he comes as the lion of the tribe of Judah, the conquering one. They're still waiting, thinking that that's the only coming that's happening. So Jesus is going to come back. They're going to see him with his scars. They're going to see him as he's pierced. Remember in Revelation chapter 5, when the angel is calling out, who's worthy to take the scroll? The scroll there in Revelation 5 represents the title deed to planet Earth. Who's there to take the scroll and loose its seals? In other words, to reclaim planet Earth. And it says, no one throughout heaven was found worthy to take the scroll and loose the seals. And John began to weep. And the angel said to him, don't cry, because Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he has been found worthy to take the scroll and loose its seals. And John says, he looks up, he's expecting to see a lion. And he says, I saw a lamb as though he'd been slain. I think Jesus right now still bears some of the scars from the cross. And he will until he comes back at his second coming. And when he comes back, they're going to see him. Their eyes are going to be open. They're going to realize he really was the Messiah. And that's when the prophecy of Ezekiel is going to be fulfilled as the people of Israel suddenly receive Jesus as their king. And the Jews will repent from their sins and they'll turn to the Lord in mass during that time. And it's interesting because in chapter 14, he also describes this battle of Armageddon. If you want to turn over there really quick, just I'll just bring note to a couple of things where he says in verse three, the Lord will go and fight for his people. And in verse four, it says, it says, and in that day, his feet will stand upon the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives are going to split in two. And it's interesting because this is the spot where Jesus ascended up into heaven. And It's the place where he's going to come back again at his second coming. And here's what's really interesting about this. Years ago, the Sheraton Hotel chain was looking at the Mount of Olives to put in Israel as a flagship hotel. They wanted to build a hotel on the Mount of Olives. But as they did their environmental studies, they found that there is a huge fault line that flows right under the Mount of Olives. Isn't that amazing? And so they ended up building further south away from that fault line because they said that hill is unstable because it's waiting for the pressure of a foot, the foot of Jesus to stand upon it. And it's going to split in two and it goes on to further describe how it's going to be parted and a river's going to pour forth from there it's just going to be an amazing time that's going to happen when jesus comes back it's going to be a glorious day and verse 9 declares and the lord shall be king over all of the earth and this again is the second reason why israel both present and future is important in the prophetic picture is because this is where jesus is going to set up his kingdom It's going to be in Israel that he is going to reign and it's going to be his headquarters. And so when we say we need to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, you know what we're doing is we're saying we need to pray for Jesus to come back because that's when the peace of Jerusalem happens, when Jesus shows up. And it won't happen until then. There's going to be turmoil in Israel, There's going to continue to be nations. And if you, you know, went through today and looked at a list of the nations of the world and how many of them are against Israel, against Jerusalem, it's way more than are for it. It's prophecy of Zechariah taking place. So I'm going to wrap it up with this tonight. So we want to, as God's people, we want to honor the people of Israel we want to pray for the people of Israel. But that doesn't mean that everything that Israel does is right. In fact, much of Israel today lives in rebellion against God. In fact, its largest city, Tel Aviv, is one of the most carnal places on the planet. It's, it, it's like a Las Vegas of the Middle East tel aviv is it's kind of has that type of a a vibe to it most of the people you know some people think when they go to israel they it's all these you know orthodox they're the minority but most of the people in israel are very secular they're very modern they're very carnal um and they're they're living to please themselves they're living for pleasure but their eyes are going to be open when Jesus comes back. So we don't agree with everything that Israel does. It doesn't mean that every single, you know, military thing that we, they do that we're like, you know, yeah, they're no, but it means that God made a covenant with Abraham and he's going to keep that covenant. And people ask, why did God do that? And, and, and he says, and God's word, he says, I didn't, I didn't pick you because you were special or you were smart or you were significant. It's just his sovereignty that he picked the nation of Israel because God loves and this should encourage us he loves to do great things with little people. And that's what he's doing with this little tiny nation. And God wants to do that with us. He loves to do great things with little people. Great things with insignificant people. This is what we're learning in the book of Acts. The early church they weren't they weren't special. They weren't any different than us. They weren't more spiritual than we were. I mean, mean, just a little bit before um, Pentecost, I mean, they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. James and John want to blow up a city, you know. (laughs) Peter's being rebuked and said, Get behind me, Satan, by Jesus. And then he denies him, you know, three times. I doubt any of you here denied Jesus three times. Peter did. That should encourage you. He can use that guy. You can use me. And so this is the big takeaway tonight as we look at all this history of the nation of Israel, that God has put his hand upon this nation as a reminder to us that God loves to do great things with little people, with insignificant people. And he can do that with us if we're just yielded to him. If we, like Abraham, like we were talking about on Sunday, are just willing to take steps of faith. And the other thing that is our takeaway tonight is this, is we're told in the book of Luke, that when you see these things begin to happen, look up because your redemption draws near. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for what you have done with the nation of Israel. We thank you, God, for the way that you called them, and chose them, and built them. And even in all their times of rebellion, when they were taken captive by the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians and, and, and all the different groups that would come and oppress them, that you still were always faithful And you would bring them back. And even after 2,000 years, you caused that, that, that nation to be reborn and to become the powerhouse that it is today in the world. This little tiny nation that you are doing great things through. Lord, may we believe that you can do great things with our lives as well. And Lord, I pray for anybody here tonight that that doesn't know you, or maybe isn't walking with you. God, I pray tonight that they would just, in the quietness of their heart, that they would just say, Jesus, I want to turn from my sin and turn to you. And I want to follow you with all of my heart. I want to be ready. Living in light of your return. Lord, we thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. That in the midst of this just chaotic world, Lord, we know that you have a plan and that you are working, that you are in control, that you're in charge. And so, Lord, we want to just be a people that are yielded to you. Lord, I thank you for my brothers and sisters that are here tonight, those watching online, those that will watch this later. Lord, I pray that our hearts would just be ignited to follow you with every ounce of our being. And so, God, we give you this time tonight. We give you our hearts tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.